Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with the focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Really excited about today's guest. I'm joined by Reka Maholtra, AKA DJ Reka, is a producer, curator, and activist, and that doesn't begin to explain all the things she has done and all the things she's all about. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So you've done so much, and I want to get into you starting Basement Bangra, your activism, all the work that you've done across uh, any number of different fields. But we've also just had elections here in New York. Um, mm-hmm. We had a primary oh, yeah. yesterday, and I know you were a big supporter of AOC, and mm-hmm. she she trounced her opponent. She sure did. <laughs> she sure did. Yes, she was. Uh, it was it was amazing. And two years ago, AOC had her win, and it was phenomenal. But a more local race in our community, Assembly District 34, was also a pretty hot race. Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas was mounting campaign against Michael Dendecker, who was an incumbent since 2008. He's a, it's an assembly position, so it's state legislature. And she was challenged by two other opponents, who shall not be named. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And it was a very, very contentious race. And it kind of unfortunately magnified the differences and the divides and the points of view of the neighborhood. And it was kind of a microcosm of gentrification, class politics, approaches towards structural inequalities across the board. Luckily, our girl, we don't want to like celebrate too early because we got burned with Tiffany Coban's race last year. Mm -hmm. But it's looking positive. She has a significant lead. We still have to count absentee ballots, but mm-hmm. she has a marked lead. And the who shall not be named in particular is fourth. So yes. <laughs> karma's, karma is in action. Awesome. Um, so that was the race that you know I worked on personally and uh, me and my partner. And uh, we're really excited. We really think this person is going to make some real difference. And, you know, it's interesting because you touched on a lot of things in that synopsis where, you know, there's the gentrification, there's class issues, there's just cultural divides that exist mm-hmm. within neighborhoods. And we, we think about those things classically in political um, spheres and social activist spheres. But, you know, I, I often come to those space, those issues in places where we've kind of connected, which is nightlife. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I, I love your your take on that. And, and maybe that gives you an opportunity to give us more of, of a background of, you know, how you started um, Basement Bonger. That was one of the longest running parties in the city at such a unique time, I think, in New York's history. There's just I always reference that <laughs> that movement um, mm-hmm. for so many different reasons, because I think it's such a it's like a case study of of hip hop, of mm-hmm. cultural influences, of yes. gentrification, of New York City. Like it's, it's this beautiful, but yet 
because I know it was tough along the way for you as well. But it's like this beautiful thing because it was so successful. But it's it's such a useful way to start a conversation about so many of those issues. So I've editorialized a lot. So I want to mm-hmm. like give you an opportunity to to share a little bit of that story. Sure. I mean, I think looking at it from a class and a racial lens of how I started the party is is appropriate because those are the reasons that motivated me. So Basin Bungro was a monthly night that started in 97 at SOBs, which technically sounds for Sounds of Brazil, but <laughs> it might as well be Sounds of Bass because they pivoted along the way. Uh, it was Definitely. Brazilian-themed, and then it's become kind of a, for a Brazilian-themed and via that a sort of a world music venue, but yeah. more and more it's known as a hip-hop venue. Exactly. One of the few hip-hop venues. One of the few because we all know there's the hip-hop police in New York. Exactly. And, you know, I have to say something about the venue itself has always been open to things that weren't really welcomed in other in other nightlife spaces. And, you know, so that was one reason. So basically, uh, Basin Bunga started because uh, at, the, at the time in the, I'd say, the mid to late 90s, uh, along with my then DJ partner, Joy, who's since gone on to become a fintech guy, but that's another story. You know, we were DJing and we would get hired for uh, South Asian parties, mostly Indian, let's be clear. And it was a time when, you know, if we look at the immigration history, post-65, there was a wave, an influx of people from South Asia. And, you know, late 90s, the children of those folks are coming of age. So there's a critical mass in New York City of people in their 20s, which is what I was, looking for some sort of social engagement with each other. And there were no formalized club spaces at that time. And also club culture was very different and DJ culture was different at the time. So there was no place that there would be uh, in the city, there would be like college parties by Indian associations. And there was actually a thriving scene in South Queens, Indo-Caribbean culture, which in many ways is culturally like, unfortunately isolated from sort of dominant South Asian culture, but mm-hmm. they have a thriving music and cultural scene. Yeah. So they had nightclubs there, Soka Paradise, one of them. Yeah, exactly. More Guyanese and Trinidadian. Trinidadian, yeah. Soka, culture, Soka yeah. Paradise, Trinidadian, Guyanese. So those were the dominant. So they were Indo, we call them Indo Caribbean, even though Guyana's in South America, but, yeah. you know, culturally. Yeah. So one thing led to another. We got a gig at, uh, at SOBs to support something else that was happening. And the club approached me to come up with a concept for a night which was different than the other parties. The other parties were a rent-a-club. In fact, mm-hmm. I started one of the regular parties at another venue. I don't know if you remember the spot, Phil, Demerara on 28th. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Demerara <laughs> was a rent-a-club. They took an ad in the Village Voice, and for $500, you could have that club. Yeah, you could do, do anything at Demerara's. That's, a, that's a name I haven't heard <laughs> in a long time, but I had some nights at Demerara's. <laughs> we all did. We all did. We had some nights. I mean, I was... I have a flyer from, they used to do jungle raves there. It's, it's a rent-a-club. Yeah. And there are these spaces that are like, they don't care who it is. They're not, there's not an in-house programmer or curator. They just want to fill the space. Yeah. And often marginalized groups get access to those space, space, people that don't have access to regular, more established venues. So actually, we start, I, I threw a fundraiser there for an organization I was working with at the time called YAR, which is a Sanskrit-based word meaning friend. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, 
Preet Bharara was also in that group. Oh, word. So I know Preet from back in the day. He was a law student at Columbia at the time. So Demerara, we started a monthly club night for Yar. And then eventually other promoters took over and it was not politically affiliated. It just became a party spot. And then uh, eventually th- one thing led to another. So we would like throw our own parties, me and Joy. We would get booked for other parties. And whenever we got hired by other promoters or other organizations, there was a lot of don't do this and don't do that. Don't play hip hop, code word, it's black music. Mm-hmm. Don't play bhangra, which is Punjabi music. And the coding there is don't play black music because it's black music and it'll attract elements within our community that are hoodlums. So that's a, a racial and class bias that they, a thing that they don't want to give into. And then the bhangra was cab drivers, like uncouth. And that's a sort of a racial stereotype that exists within South Asia. Punjabis are, you know, they're like loud and they're, they're not civilized and they're brutish. And to use another racial stereotype, they're, they have the appearance of like the Guidos of India, I would say. That's okay. a terrible way to put it. But no, these but it, racial stereo codes have, they have certain, I, I say that with respect and not in any derogatory way. Yeah. But it's, it's like those stereotypes, those stereotypes are, uh, are very uh, vivid and they, they have a currency. So in uh, defense of that, when the club said, do you want to try a night? I was like, well, I want to do a night that embraces both of those things. Mm-hmm. The other thing we have to remember is hip hop is not mainstream at this time. Hip hop is not on top 40 radio. Hip hop is only on black stations. It's only on Kiss FM. It's only on Hot 97. It's only on WBLS. This is very New York. This is a very New York conversation we're having yeah. here. I have a kiss card, by the way, somewhere. And uh, this is before Eminem, which I think really broke it to me, broke hip hop to sort of More, top 40 radio. Exactly. For what it's worth. So I wanted a party that really focused on Bhangra, Punjabi music that came from the UK and hip hop. I mean, we played a variety of things, to be honest, but that was the core musical thrust of the night. And it took off. Let's just say that. And the idea of doing it monthly to doing it on Thursdays when this was more of a, what we like to call a bridge and tunnel crowds would do Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I was like, no, let's try to get, let's stay away from that. Try to minimize that. And the rest is history. So it, it was a standing night for first Thursdays for 20 years. And you already pointed out how different the cultural Malou was, right? Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of folks know hip hop is so pervasive. It is so much just the mainstream music that I think you pointing out very correctly that yes, it was still played on, you know, black, what were considered urban black urban. stations, right? Mm-hmm. But also clubs like beyond the the rent a club space of kind of like these venues that didn't have their own identity. Nightlife in New York was very segregated. Oh, right. So, so like, much. so many clubs didn't play. It's not like today where even you go to a club or you go to a lounge or something, even if it's still predominantly white, the music is going to be hip hop. It is, but within hip hop, it takes it takes a time for certain genres within hip hop to become success to become accepted. So, within the trajectory of hip hop, you know, there was a lot of policing on trap. Cause that yeah. felt too much or there's always like, you know, certain, certain things always feel too much or whatever. Um, yeah. but and you, uh, you were doing this when it was 
unless you were going to a black club or what was mm-hmm. considered a black club, you were not going to hear hip hop. And I think that's like to take those two cultures and blend them at that time, right? This is even before Timberland beats started to be yeah. more influenced by mm-hmm. South Asian vibe and culture, right? Yeah. So this really was a, a I want to really emphasize what a pioneering move this was like seriously it was a i mean it seems like, like you did it so i know what that feels I, like i never think about the hip-hop side of it i always think of the bungra side but you're yeah. right i mean but it's putting true. both of those things together i think mm-hmm. is just because mm-hmm. these were not mainstream moments it was really in front of that that curve mm-hmm. which i think is critical to that moment yeah i mean the musics have synergies and especially as we hit the early 2000s we're really in a 95, 98 BPM mind. And the songs really lend themselves to each other. And they're produced similarly, you know? Like, let's talk about how they're made. They're made with bass lines and, you know, like, you've got the bass, you've got the vocals, you've got the melodic instruments, you've got the quantized 4-4 beats. They meld together. And we also did a fair share of dance hall. I love 90s dance hall. It's like, to me, the golden age. Yeah. I mean, I think now... It's funny because I had, you know, I had other gigs as DJs and there would be, there would definitely be policing, especially the more fancy places. If somehow I got a gig there or whatever, they would, managers and people would definitely be like, don't play that or stop that. And one time I was playing, I mean, there was like no one there even. It was like someplace on 14th street. And the guy literally said, don't play tribal music, you know, which I found extremely offensive. Yeah. Or I wonder now, as DJs now, you know, I'm always like, well, what's the barrier of what you shouldn't play? And I wonder now, like, is Afrobeat the line that you can't cross until you can cross it, you know? Or was that the line? Or if you play too much Spanish language stuff, where it's like the club goers need to hear things in English. I mean, I'm just curious. I'm not in those spaces anymore. So I, I don't know what it is, but I, I'm sure there's something. Because there you, always is. What do you think makes like you think about culture spaces these are supposed to be places where you're open right where experimentation is a part of the natural evolution of the process like what do you think it is that makes folks more protective of of space right where they don't want to take chances or introduce new things it seems like those two ideas would be opposed to one another Well, I think we have to be more specific about the space. Now, if we're Mm -hmm. talking about a nightclub, it's a business. It wants a certain crowd. There's policing of people. There's an assumption of what people consume and of what's acceptable. And so I think that they're not looking for culture. They're looking for consistency. And it happens all the time. I remember my friend, I don't know if you know, Joey Patel, Jasbo. He's a writer and movie, you know, does film stuff. He did the MTV My Block series. He's done a lot of work work hmm. advising. He's told me about nights where you remember Key Club or System yeah. or whatever that was, right? And I forgot what the party was. It was like a GQ party. Q tip was in the in the magazine. Okay. They're watching like, you know, white girl after white girl going and he can't get into his own party. I mean that's not unheard of. And also what I think is interesting that we don't talk about is who are the people policing the doors? Mm-hmm. You know, they're often the bouncer. What is the bouncer? What is being perpetrated by that kind of physical presence of the bouncer 
being put in that position to regulate who comes in and who doesn't based on your look, your clothes, et cetera. I mean, one thing I fought hard for, and I'm, I don't think I was always successful because I feel like when I wasn't looking, they weren't following was like no dress codes, no gender parity, none of that shit. Like just come to dance. And uh, one night I happened to be in uh, what's now, I guess, Hudson Yards on 10th Avenue, somewhere in the twenties. And we were having a drink with some friends and it was like a Friday. So we were like early on the side of clubbing. And by the time we were done and we walked out and that, that was when, um, that club stereo, 28th street, Marquee, yeah, the bad, all that stuff home. Yeah. Right. So this is maybe mid aughts. Right. And I, I, we went out and we saw these guys and they were all dressed the same. Yeah. They were dressed to meet the dress code. They had shoes on, they had jeans, but they were very neat and they had button down shirts and they all looked like, it was like, yeah, they looked like the, clothes, but they were the out uniform. to and they need that they were wearing what they minimal they needed to get in because flyers would say no Timberlands, no work boots, no, you know, no, this, no, that. No t-shirts, and, um, no do-rags, no sneakers at the time. Sneakers yeah, weren't so- even cool. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. And these are dress codes. These are codes. These are things to limit people. These are things to control people. So yeah, I mean, nightlife is a business and there's an assumption around and they want to have a certain look in the room, a certain crowd and a lot of gender parity. You know, you can't have a group of guys. Girls can always get in or whatever. And then flyers that say ladies free. I mean, I never participated in any of that whatsoever. Yeah, there are times that we didn't have gender parity, but whatever, that's what it is, you yeah, know. It's a night out. But those are those are not things that they're it's good to push for them, but mm-hmm. it's I think it's also important to point out how hard and that's an uphill battle, right? And the nightlife situations, like I wanna broaden that out as you've done many other things, right? We, you know, we started this using this idea of class and those kind of structures to kind of illuminate a point through nightlife, but now kind of taking that out of the nightlife space because you've been, you know, an activist. You've worked on on many different issues within your community. Do you see like having to fight some of these same fights of, you know, there's cultural norms within all communities. There's things people are accustomed to, but as we're trying to move toward, I, I would think, a more progressive, a more radical future. Like, how do you confront some of those same issues, whether you're dealing with social, you're dealing with political? Like, do you have some some examples of that or thoughts about where that's impacted? Sure. I mean, I think working in the South Asian community, there is a lot of class struggle or class ignorance, I would say. I think there's more uh, awareness of it now. We have a there's an awareness of within South Asia and India specifically, the Dalits, which are considered the untouchable caste. There is a, a movement of marginalized folks rising up to the to, to speak out and to call out things, to call out Hindu fundamentalism as it manifests in many different ways. That's there. I mean, I felt that even, you know, when I was doing my, when I started getting involved in community things, I mean, I was brought into community activism because I was, it was a reaction to, in New York uh, in 87, there was a, a rash of violence against South Asians in Jersey City. 
there was some vandalism, some whatever, but it, it got pretty violent where this one guy was murdered outside coming out of a bar in a froze movie. His white colleague was left untouched. He was beaten to death by a mob. And then the second most violent case was uh, a doctor who was beaten outside a fire station. How do you get beaten outside a fire station? Yeah. And so these cases, nothing happened to the folks that were uh, criminally indicted because nobody talked. Nobody was snitching. It's very tight. Hudson County, these people had ties to the police force. And then there were the civil cases. So the civil case for Koshal Sharon was happening. And then the they were trying to pack the court. That's how I got involved with Yar, actually, mm-hmm. with Preet Brar and a bunch of other lawyers. So I, I met South Asian folks a few years ahead of me who had been through, who were like young lawyers or in law school. I was like, wow, how do these people exist? How are they allowed to like be lawyers and do other things and fight for racial justice? And then, you know, I, the subtext of that is I didn't realize how wealthy they were. Okay. <laughs> and I mean, not the subtext, but I eventually I got to know them and understand them. And there was a great discomfort there for me in learning, meeting people in these activist circles and how much of activism within the community started out from wealthy folks, because it's a lot, some part of it is a luxury yeah. and not to discount other movements. And then eventually within the community, like we have organizations that have more of a class focus that are working to organize different labor forces like Taxi Workers Alliance. And even in those spaces, like some of those folks were elite academics and they had their own elitisms. So, I mean, I think it complicates things all around. I mean, I interned for a South Asian DV organization and uh, I think I got the I got the internship in part because I was seen as like an immigrant working. I, I, I'm not working class. I'm middle-ish class, you know? Mm-hmm. But it was different from what they were. You know, they had all gone to elite schools. They had come here to study from India. They lived in Manhattan, Upper West Side. They grew up English speaking. So there are some of those those definite things. But I think the where my my draw or where I'm drawn to in terms of activism is larger structural inequalities mm-hmm. that transcend these things. And that's why I think Black Lives Matter is sort of the heart of everything. And I think it it really is a sort of fundamental lens to see America through. Mm -hmm. And if, if we can really see America through that, then that's the work that has to be done to fight for black liberation. It's fundamental and it it needs to be incorporated in everything. I mean, it's really, it's a really interesting time to see the corporate adaptation of black lives matter. I mean, we saw it with like queer stuff, like all of a sudden gay pride went from anybody marches to like super corporate sponsorships and lots of cops at the parade. And then as gay pride became more commercial, you know, trans and black folks got pushed to the side even more. And so if we just keep the focus of black lives matter, black trans lives matter, and we keep that centered in our thinking, it doesn't matter where we're working. You know, even if I, you know, I'm on the board of a South Asian community org that fights for, you know, housing and economic justice, that is still important to the mission of that organization. Yeah. I think, you know, and I think like all the things we're fighting for, for Chaya.org is like, we're, we're combating years and years and years of systemic oppression, of redlining, of developers. That's what we're, we're always, New York City is a, a real estate battle from day one. Yeah. That's 100%. what this city is about. It's about that first $24 that we're exchanged. 
the first hustle in New York was buying the land. Yeah. And, and it's been going on and on and people getting pushed out of Central Park, black folks getting pushed out of Central Park to build Central Park, getting pushed out and pushed out and pushed out. And that is the battle. So if I'm working with an organization that is looking to anti-gentrification and housing stability and economic stability, it's a fight that is connected to that larger fight. Yeah. And it's it's instructive that you touched on a couple of things that I think are really interesting. One being this this particular moment in time, right? Like we're at this meeting of so many different forces where we have such a corrosive political environment. We have the existing COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. And now we have social unrest, social uprising due to Black Lives Matter, but this particular moment of extrajudicial murder of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, and you see these these moments. And, you know, that corporate piece is so interesting because it's like, you know, we've seen these stories before, right? What do you think in your mind has made this moment so different from other moments? And then a, a, a quick second part that I want you to kind of think about is how do we maintain these conversations to be centered on really the social justice piece and not be co-opted by the corporate piece? So kind of two questions in there. Sure. I mean, the first piece is like, why this moment? Why why now? Yeah. And I think a couple of things, I think there's this just like the brutalization, the brutalized murder of this man was unbearable. It was so violent. And we've seen violent things before, but this was particularly violent. It was not a man killed a man with his body. Mm. I also think that uh, our president has racially polarized the country in such a way. Like we have a racist in the White House. Yeah. We have a racist who is supported by other racists. And they may not even be that racist, but they're so power hungry that they don't care enough. So we're really seeing this racial inequity being magnified. And I think people are like, whoa, I can't. And I also think that it's not just this moment. It's people have been doing this work for years and years and years. Prison abolition is not a new idea. Yeah. No new jails and defund the police is not a new idea. It's reached to a, a critical mass of understanding what that means. And I also think like organizer and, and activists are using like effective tools and making a better case. And I don't think the Democratic Party knows how to make that case at all. They're also invested in themselves and not in the people they care for, that they purport to represent. Yeah. I mean, data visualization of police budgets is enough to sway people. I think seeing that six to one, your police budget, and seeing that what the hell do the cops really do? And it is a deep, on camera, across the country, at every protest, in every city, you see cops beating the shit out of innocent people. Yeah. You tell me that's not a fundamental cultural problem. Yeah. You Small know, towns I, to big cities, it doesn't I mean, matter. Off, it's, and, and that's what we're seeing. So then it's like, wow, this is what we're seeing. What are we not seeing? You know? And I think when, and unfortunately, I think it's when white people start getting hurt or inconvenienced, people pay attention differently. Mm-hmm. So these white protester allies are also getting the shit kicked out of them. And journalists are getting you know, whatever, I think it becomes different. And I think 
in conjunction with COVID, in conjunction with people having the numbers that are able to happen in the protests in a consistent way helps. And also the disparity of care in different communities is really intense. This disease does not hit people equally. It does not. Your class and your your background and where you're from affects your your likelihood to get it. Despite the messaging, right? A lot of the corporate messaging. If your job is to like be out on the street, yeah. you can't. Or, it's, it's, or sometimes the home is not a place that's technologically capable or psychologically capable. It's not sure. a comfortable space or a safe space for everyone, right? So Absolutely we're, mm-hmm. you know, we're getting these opportunities to kind of, I guess, break down what we normally think. Like everyone thinks like, oh, I could just stay at home. Like what a pleasure, right? For some people getting out the house is the refuge. Absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah. And people who like struggle with addiction and just other things, you know, like it's, I, I, I really feel for those folks who like need community in a more physical way to, to stay grounded. Like I mean, one of the things that grounds me, that has grounded me, is going to the gym. It's good for my mental health, mm-hmm. my physical health. It was my foundation of my day. And I don't have that. And that's definitely something I've had to deal with. I can't see myself taking a subway anytime soon. Yeah. That's just, I, haven't, I haven't been in the city since March 8th. Oh, like, wow. I've just been foot. <laughs> if I everywhere I've been going has been I've been capable of walking well, there. I am fortunate that I have a car. Okay. Because me and my partner are to see our families who live in the tri-state in the you know Connecticut Long Island and her brother. We haven't seen my partner's brother in a long time, and we are like, when are we going to see him? We don't know. Yeah. His wife works in a hospital. Wow. She's a therapist. I mean, things are changing. Things are opening up. There's social distance hangs. Yeah. We're trying to get comfortable, but I also live in the epicenter of the epicenter. You know, I live yeah. in Jackson Heights, Queens. So, you know, it feels different here. We live in, a, I live in an apartment building. There's like, you know, it, it's a different feeling. So we're, we're cautious still. Yeah. There's a lot going on. Right. And so now we're, you had a second part to the question, which, oh, was, the second part was the corporate piece, right? Like, yeah. how do we maintain the focus on the, the real issues, the activists? centering of Black Lives Matter, which I think to your point, it's a larger conversation around all of these of these issues of equity, right? I think it's just, you just don't lose your sight of your goals. You just keep pushing. And I think the fact that we're seeing people having the courage to speak about inequities in media rooms, in media companies, is something that's I think really important kicking open, you know, what's happening in certain corporate spaces and corporate media spaces, I think is very important. Like my friend Farai Chidea has been tweeting a lot about her experiences and she's worked in all kinds of environments, uh, you know, corporate places. She's written lots of books. She was part of a mission to start a diverse podcast and got pushed out and she does it with grace. Yeah. Uh, I think we just have to keep pushing. Yeah, she's she's a she's a great voice out there. That's the one thing that I have noticed as well. That it's just a, a little notation of what's different is that you know in the past we've had incidents happen, whether it's a, a racial incident or or something else, where 
corporations will make, uh, you know, the blanket statement, you know, we stand in solidarity or, you know, whatever the phrasing is. But this is one of the first times that I've started to see people like push back on those statements where someone, you know, company X will release their statement and then some employee that's either still there or was there will say, oh, it's interesting you say that company X because my experience was different. Black screenshot. (laughs) Yeah, like with receipts, right? Like they're releasing emails, like Slack, text conversations. Like people aren't letting the corporate statement come without examining it. Yeah, I mean, it's still there. I mean, I have a friend who works in a very big corporate media company and, you know, they're woke in their own way and they have black-facing leaders uh, in their media company. I won't divulge too much. And he recounts the day-to-day meetings, the day-to-day, who's in the power, who didn't get promoted. This one division is getting built out further and how the people of color have their side conversations they have to to survive and how in a lot of places where there's supposed diversity, it's like white women managers. And that's not, it has to be intersectional. It can't just be one thing. So it's still there. People don't want to give up power, especially when they don't even think they have it, but they do. You know, I think uh, you might've seen this, this Facebook group where this guy said, Black editors or something hit me up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have seen that story kind of circulating. And the the vitriol he got for doing that. Yeah, all the producers and camera people. You just don't understand what it means to give people opportunities. You're assuming that he is going to do what actually probably got you your job, which is like you're assuming that because he's asking for those resumes, because they're ex, he's going to hire them which is probably how you got your job. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's just so illuminating. It's ridiculous. And that power conversation, like you mentioned that idea of, of giving up power. I, I think, you know, I, I want to think about that a little bit more, but also add the kind of idea of meritocracy, right? Like oh, in, in, a, a in a lot of ways where we're navigating that idea, right? That mm-hmm. I'm in this room solely based on, on my merit. And so anyone not in the room, they're not in a room based on their lack of merit, right? Like interrogating these stories that we we tell each other, like as someone in media, right? You're a, you've, you've done it all in terms of kind of in a way crafting stories. How have you seen that idea of meritocracy play into things or where do you see that kind of lining up? I mean, it doesn't line up. <laughs> meritocracy just doesn't line up because it's not true. I mean, from a, from putting on my artist lens, I'm always going to say, make the best work you can, mm-hmm. you know, do the best you can make the best work you can be as nice as you can to people. The relationship side of things plays an, a, a role in, in your opportunities. And it's hard. I mean, I feel like people in certain spheres, like I'm not, I'm too honest or something, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to give it, give it straight. And people always want to hear that. I think it, when you're in a position of power yourself, it's your responsibility to, to help other people. It just is, you know, you have to lift people up. It can't be like, I'm here, you know, screw the person behind me. And I really try to put that in practice where I can, because every, like, it's like, I look at actors, blockbuster movies, 
It's not an acting challenge. It's about getting cast. It's the casting that's hard. It's getting the role that's hard. It's not the acting. A million people can do that job. How do you get that role? And that is what I feel like is the, is the problem with everything. Even whatever we're looking at, media companies, professions, DJs that make shit ton of money to do nothing, to spend, spend an hour. I mean, look at the racial makeup of high paying DJs. It's absurd. You know, you have to really be mindful. And if you're in any position of power, whether it's booking a show or doing anything, you have to ask yourself those questions all the time. It's like whatever you have your hand in curating or influencing, I mean, I would say put it back to you, Phil, like your, your guests on your show. Like it's, I think it's your responsibility to have these conversations as wide as possible. And I try to do the same where I can, but not at the cost of the art. But, you know, that's a tricky situation. I don't think you do a service if you're, booking for the sake of booking, you still have to have the curator's hand in it. And if you notice a gap in what's available, then it's your job to even go further around that. Yeah. But, I, uh, I 100% agree. You got to do the extra work mm-hmm. because the voices are, are there. And it's always interesting to me that when the voices all look the same, no one ever questions it. And oh, no. I, I see the meritocracy argument kind of thrown around you know, it can be like we've talking about art spaces, curatorial spaces, but it, it's in almost anything, right? Like, it, it, this ain't really a super political show, but I've I've recently was going back and forth with some folks talking about like, oh, well, why is Biden going to pick a woman? Like, shouldn't he just pick the best candidate? And I'm like, why are you making the assumption that the best candidate ain't it's a woman? A- just generally, right? Like, a woman should be already president <laughs> by by now, right? Like, it's well, absurd. it's also like you know. <laughs> Having a non-cis man gives you such different perspective. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, Padma Lakshmi has a new food show out. And I started seeing the early comments and people were like, well, she's no Anthony Bourdain. I'm like, dudes have so many food shows. There's so many travel and find the food show. So many. Yeah. Nobody says that. And also she started doing these kinds of food shows before Anthony Bourdain even had his first show, by the way. You know, her first experience in TV was traveling and eating from years and years ago. And, uh, and you know, she defends it and saying, you know, I have a different perspective. I'm an immigrant. I'm a mother. I have, like, why not have different perspectives in telling stories? Exactly. And I wanted to ask you about the show because I I know we were getting to the wrap up. So I wanted to ask about, like, all the new stuff you have going on because you have so many kind of projects Obviously, you're DJing now online. Yeah, I'm sure you got gigs coming up, but I did want to ask you about the show. So now this is the opportunity for like all the new shit. <laughs> this is the new shit part of the of the conversation. All right, the new shit. Well, I, I have very little to do with the show itself. This is also a, a question of your friend bringing you into their project. I composed with some collaborators the opening credit sequence, so... It's a tiny snippet. It's in every episode. It's not the whole music, but the opening credits. And that was a lot of work because there, <laughs> there was a lot of cooks in that kitchen. Yeah. But we got there. And then uh, I'm featured in, I'm, uh, I'm in a segment in one of the episodes. So it's 10 episodes. And it was really Padma's vision. She's like, I want to like learn about people. I want to find, figure out, I want to like redefine what we think of as American food. And I want to know about the people who make it and just disrupt that idea. And so, you know, she visits the Gullah Geechee community. She she does a New York show on, uh, you know, Jackson Heights, my neighborhood. So I do a little walking tour with her. Awesome. 
and she talks to Mother Jaffrey, who is an icon in Indian cooking and also an actress. And she goes to many different locations and food and people. So that's that. So I had, in terms of my involvement, was minor, and uh, but it was fun. And, you know, I've known her for many years, and it's really good to see her. She's been working on this idea for a long time. And then uh, for lockdown, quarantine, whatever, I started doing weekly, uh, I do Sunday lives, Sunday sessions, which is just a live one-hour dance to not get shut down from Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Which is really terrible and that, you know, there's no easy way to do that. So those are the two things I'm working on. I do a weekly podcast as well, Bunger and Beyond, which is just mostly music. And uh, I think in lockdown, I've been getting a lot more podcast interviews. Yeah, yeah. It's so one of the great mediums that yeah. we, can, I mean, we can take advantage of. I'm a radio head from the, from the word go. I grew up on WBAI in New York, which is very different than what it was today. That station alone politicized me. I got my start there in radio. I lost my mind when I started working there because all these revolutionary voices on that station, I eventually got to like be in the room with or meet Samori Marksman, Bernard White. There was, you know, I learned about political leaders like C. Vernon Mason. And it was just a whole different voice. Yeah. Uh, a, different, a different lens to see New York City with. And I learned about it because I worked at my dad's store in Midtown and I used to read the Village Voice, which used to be uh, a Bible for me. The and Village I learned Voice so was everything. Voice. It was everything. I learned about the Angelica movie theater. I learned about something happening on BAI and I tuned it on and they were doing a Prince marathon. I'm like, what is this place? Yeah. Taking for granted all those things, like the Village Voice, like picking that up every week and kind of flipping through like music reviews and movie openings and the clubs, you know, live venues, who's coming to perform and just... I studied that thing. Yeah. It used to not be free. I used to buy it. When I was 18, living in Westbury, Long Island, I had a subscription <laughs> and it got sent to my house. And my mom thought like, what is this thing? Yeah, what's remember, going on? No, I remember I said, I want a futon. <laughs> Like, what's a futon? Why are you reading? It's because you read that, that that newspaper. You want a futon because there was nothing but futon. Ads. Yeah. And the cover art was always kind of this interesting and out there. And yeah, and the then, village voice. You know, and then, you know, like you have stages of, of your own measure of success. So getting into the village voice was like, oh, my God. And I had two covers in the art section at various times. I was like, wow. Yeah, you made it. You know, that's that's making it. That's making it in New York for sure. Oh man, it's it's awesome. I, I want to get to the last two segments of the show. Sure. So, you know, we covered so much, and you know, we could do this forever. So, there's a second episode in the works, probably somewhere down the line. So, I want to get to off the dome. So, it's just going to be some rapid fire questions, kind of sure. give me first impression. So, the first one is you spun it a lot of places. You've done a lot of events. Past or present, which or future, what's like your most coveted either place or event to spin at? Coveted. I would just say summer stage. Okay. The yes. event, the final basement in 2017. That was one of the best days of my life. All right. Can't go wrong with summer stage. Yeah. And now I'm going to give a Mount Rush. Like what's your Mount Rushmore? Usually people ask this question, like, what's the Mount Rushmore of hip-hop? Look, I look at for their MCs, but your purview, your scope is broader. So, like, what's your Mount Rushmore of culture? 
your four kind of go-to places or people or things? People or places? Yeah, like that really kind of shaped your your perspective from a culture. Oh, wow. I mean, I would have to say Audrey Lord. This is tough. This is a tough one. Um, Prince, I'm just trying to think of who I like consumed to death or like look for or reread or just reaccess. Wong Kar Wai. <laughs> I'm just thinking off the top. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. That off the dome. That's the same. Like, who's just like really it? Shit. I stumped you. <laughs> you stumped me. You stumped me. Trying to think of who else. I mean, that's a powerful three. We can make yes. a, we can make a smaller Mount Rushmore. We can go All with right. three. Let's just let's leave it at that for okay, now. Okay, let's go with those three. What's yeah. your go-to must-play song in a set? Uh go-to must-play song. Uh I could just look at my playlist. Um I would say probably anything by like Bally Sagu. I always put a Bally Sagu track in my set. I feel like he just speaks to me in so many ways, like okay. either dance hall reggae stuff or some of the hardcore bhangra stuff. It just works. Yeah. Now, this is a, a burrow question. Final yes. question, burrow question. You've lived in Brooklyn. You live in yes. Queens. You can only choose one for all your future living. What's it going to be? Queens. I've come back home. I'm not leaving. <laughs> Queens it is. Queens it is. That's awesome. So the final segment of the show is The Drop, where we just kind of recommend something for the listeners to kind of check out. I asked you to give a drop. I'm going to give a drop. I can go first with my drop. Okay. My drop is is really, it's an essay. So it's it's a piece that I've been, I don't know, for the past month or so, been reading and rereading like several times. I printed out a copy. Um, It's a James Baldwin essay. And it's and it's called Nothing Personal. He he did a book with um, Richard Avedon, famous photographer, and it's it's a beautiful book, very hard to find in print nowadays. But the essays you can find online pretty easily. And but this particular one, um, Nothing Personal, inspired an essay that I wrote recently. Excerpts from it. So if folks can kind of go out and find that, I, oh, I, I recommend it highly as a as a good read. It's kind of melancholy, but. I don't know. I, I, I dig it a lot and it's been coming back to me a lot. That's great. I almost said James Baldwin for the Mount Rushmore. <laughs> Let's, he gets a, almost for the Mount Rushmore. So he's still I mean, gets I was in like, there. James Baldwin, but you know, I was like, okay, James Baldwin is the truth. I mean, just watching his clips on Dick Cavett, just what he says is just, yeah. I mean, he's so eloquent. I was a little disappointed by the movie though. I don't, oh. you know, like, Family-sponsored movies about queer people are never, never honest. That right, yeah, that's true. That's all it is. It's like the Bob Marley movie too. It was like, yeah, you're leaving some things out. I think the thing that I've been thinking about, well, it's like two things. One is, um, can I give you two? Of course, yeah. I've had people give me more than two, so two okay, is cool. So one is the the essay in the New York Times by Miriam Kaba about yes, we do mean abolish the police. She's a prison abolitionist, has been working in this for a long time. She has an organization called Survive and Punished, which tries to, most women that are in um, prison are there as a result of domestic violence. In some ways, they've been defending themselves and they get incarcerated for it. So, you know, Governor Cuomo is deaf to this. He's a terrible governor, despite what people think. Agreed. 
And I thought her essay was very clear, was very succinct, and it just really was clear. The second thing I want to say is uh, I love podcasts, and there's this podcast. It's a short, it's only a few episodes, but it's so fun. It's called Home Cooking. It's with Samin Nasrat, who did Salty. Uh, she did a, a cooking show on Netflix. Okay. And with this other, he's a South Asian podcaster. Uh, he used to do Song Exploder. His name is escaping me. So they have this cute little, like, it was sort of like a pandemic podcast about home cooking. And they take a bunch of calls about different things. And they just have such a chemistry. And he's Indian. She's Persian, Iranian as not Persian. She's Iranian and he's Indian. And I also have a very close uh, Iranian friend. And I felt like some of the the, the conversations felt very familiar. We're like, oh my God, that's a word in both our languages. Like we do that all the time because there is a lot of ish go. We have that word too. Or, you know, that's awesome. Um, so I just thought it was just like a fun listen. Okay. Um, that's a yeah. great, those are two great drops. Perfect. Yeah. This was awesome. I'm glad we got a chance to do this. It's always great talking to you. It's always great seeing your work in every sphere that you operate in, whether it's behind the decks activism out in the streets, pushing some important messages around inclusion, justice, and equity. Those are all important things. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having Reka Maholtra, AKA DJ Reka, join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.